Let me give you a little background. If you've not been uh, here through the season of Advent or Christmas with us, uh, we've been doing a series called Unto Us and looking at four Old Testament prophecies about the coming Messiah who would come and save his people. The first week of Advent, we looked at a passage in Genesis chapter 3. It's really the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and their disobedience uh, of God's uh, commands. That story, the prophecy in that story was that the seed of the woman would ultimately come who would crush the serpent and provide salvation. Second week in that series, we looked at a story in Exodus 12. It's the story of the Passover when uh, the ten God... Uh, had the, the plagues on the, in Egypt in order to get his people freed from years of slavery. The tenth plague uh, was um, there needed to be a spotless lamb who would, uh, uh, that was sacrificed and then the blood sprinkled on the doorposts of the home so that the death angel would pass over and spare, uh, God would spare those who were trusting in him. Third week, we looked at a passage in Deuteronomy 18 where it talked about the a prophet who would come who would be greater than Moses, who would speak the truth to us. The fourth Sunday in Isaiah chapter 7, we saw the prophecy of the virgin who would conceive and bear a son and saw that fulfilled in Mary and the baby Jesus that was gifted to the world. On Christmas Eve, we talked about the final prophecy in Isaiah 9, 6, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called, and you see them all listed here, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Today, I want to kind of round out this uh, series with asking the question, what now? How does the coming of Christ affect us today? And we're going to look at uh, just some very familiar words in the New Testament, John's Gospel, so the word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. Has Jesus' coming changed anything? Has it changed us? And that's the question we'll be asking uh, today. Let's pray together, shall we? God, in a world uh, that is often dark and hopeless and full of fear, you shine your light into that darkness in the person of Jesus Christ. And into this world of ours, you have shined a light of hope to touch our brokenness and our fear and even to conquer the greatest enemy of all, which is death. We thank you for your love and for the incredible gift of your Son. Meet us in this time of worship today and enlighten the eyes of our hearts so that we will see you clearly, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. If you remember back to um, this time two years ago, just as we were about to celebrate Christmas, much of our nation experienced a massive winter storm and thought thousands of us lost power, many for days, some even longer. I thought of that again this morning as I got up and turned on the news and saw the devastating storms in other parts of our country. But a lot of us discovered that there's nothing like being stuck in a cold, dark house without a working furnace or television or stove or refrigerator or lights, in some cases even water. But we survived, and I found myself thinking about what it would be like if there was an even more serious nationwide loss of power. It's a little bit like being thrown back into the world that I picture maybe my grandparents growing up in. 
uh, when they were children, when a lot of the modern conveniences that we take for granted weren't even invented yet, can we even begin to imagine how much each of our lives would change today without the simplicity of uh, uh, things like electricity for lights, uh, heat, appliances, entertainment? How would our lives change without computers, without the internet? To suddenly lose all of those things that we've grown so dependent on would truly be a world-changing event. So if we're going to explore that a little bit further, what exactly would a world-changing event look like? I suppose the answer depends on what we mean by world, but it seems at first that a world-changing event might be something like Pearl Harbor or an asteroid hit or another 9-11 terrorist attack. It's, a, it's an event with, where a lot of people in the world are changed and affected in some significant way. But really, it might be more helpful today if we talked about our personal worlds, the worlds that each of us live in that are unique to us, the worlds where each one of us sets the thermostat for what is significant and what's important and what matters to us. You know, a family can all live in the same house, but each person lives in their own personal world. With modern technology, we have this immense control over what we hear and what we think about and what confronts us on any given day. And if we don't like what's coming at us on the news channel, you know, we can always watch the sports channel or the food channel. It, as Americans, we tend to believe that our personal world is the extension of the guarantee that each of us has a right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. In other words, our personal worlds are made up to a great extent of what we want. We're in charge. In a very real sense, some of us even draw a circle kind of around ourselves that says, in this circle, I'm God. I'm in charge. I'm in control. In our personal worlds, few changes come unless we want them to come. In Matthew's Gospel in chapter 2, we learn about a ruler during the time that Jesus was born. His name was Herod the Great. Now, Herod's personal world was changed. It was rocked to its foundations by three visitors from the east who came knocking at his door one day, asking the question, where's the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. See, Herod, I think, is one of the more interesting characters in the Bible because we know a great deal about him from history and from archaeology. And if you've ever heard this part of the Christmas story and thought that, you know, Herod's decree to begin slaughtering children sound a little bit over, like an overreaction, uh, let me assure you that it's right on the money for Herod. When the Romans occupied Judah and what is, was once Israel, they didn't want a local king to be in power because of the risk of revolution. So they franchised out the job of king of the Jews to Herod and his family. Herod was not a Jew. He wasn't even royalty. He was an Edumean, and his daddy had money. Herod spent every day that he was king deeply aware that he didn't deserve to be there and that people hated him, no matter how many great temples he built. And anyone who could claim to be a descendant of David could easily become a messiah and a revolutionary to overthrow him. Now, this might shed some light on Herod's personal world and how the news of a royal birth sounded to him. It also helps to remember that Herod was kind of crazy. 
And at the la- he, he was at the very least paranoid to the point of violence. He eventually killed um, uh, most of his own family for perceived conspiracies against him. Sending out his soldiers to clean up a potential problem among the children that were being born in David's royal birthplace is exactly what we might expect from Herod. So this part of the Bible has always reminded us that there are many people in our world who hate the idea that Jesus Christ is king, and they're not. And some of those people can be very nasty, even violent about it. And for all of Christian history, there have been Herods who greet the news of Jesus' birth with opposition and with hostility. And we still see it today. We hear about anti-Christian violence a lot in our world, in the news, and we nod our heads and we say, yes, there will always be people who hate us and despise what we believe. The Bible predicts things like that, doesn't it? But what about most people? Not the school shooters, not the the outspoken atheists, not the terrorists in the news, but most people. What about the guy in the next cubicle to you, or your teaching assistant, or your neighbor, or your brother, or sister, or the people who work on your car? How is their world affected by the birth of Jesus Christ? I believe that for most of the people that you and I know, the people that surround us and touch our personal worlds, the arrival of King Jesus meant almost nothing. Their worlds, public and personal, are not not altered at all by Christ's coming. See, the birth of Jesus Christ is for many people today as dry and dusty a piece of information as the most boring trivia in the most boring history textbook. They're not exactly like Herod. They are like the vast majority of people in the world today, uh, and even in the night Jesus was born, whose lives were completely unaffected. Now, let's be careful. I know we live in a community where many people are Christians, a community where Christmas is celebrated, and churches like ours are pretty well attended. And I'm also aware that we have politicians in our, in our world who talk about Christian values and religion and That still plays a part in in the fringes of many of our lives. We have manger scenes that we put up in our yards and religious music on the radio. But despite all the lights and all the decorations of the season, I really don't believe that many people, even among Christians today, and certainly not those outside the church, have their worlds deeply changed by the announcement that God is with us. That the one who is known as Wonderful Counselor and Mighty God and Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace uh, that we talked about on Christmas Eve is ruling and reigning in their world. I don't believe that the personal worlds of most of us, you and I included, sadly are changed by the world-changing event that we just marked this last week. And I think many of us know that, as we, know that as we sit here today. But it ought to be poking at us and it ought to be eating at us and nudging us because the Son of God has been given for us. But our lives are more affected by the price of gasoline at the pump when it goes up than the pri- and the price of food at the grocery store than by the birth of Jesus Christ. See, what we have among Christians in America today has been rightly called by some, a Christian ghetto. 
It's very nice that we can all be together, or at least grouped by denominations, and we can talk to each other and do things together, and Christians have their own media. We have TV and movies and radio and music, and we have teachers and we have preachers who tell us that we can have our best life now, and we have Christian stores and products and clothes, and if we want to live inside that bubble, and many Christians do, and we'll tell you that it's the way of Jesus to do that, uh, you're going to find some encouragement to live inside that Christian bubble. But if you want to live the life of a believer and a Jesus follower outside of that Christian bubble in the world that Jesus came into and loved and lived and died for and rules over, then you better expect to be uncomfortable and often misunderstood. See, I believe that um, many of us this morning, particularly among those who are youth and adults, young adults are very aware of this, and I can encourage you to you know, to, to, uh, to, to choose to leave this Christian bubble. And I want to do that. Uh, God has great things in store for us if we get out of that and into the world in which he uh, died for. Let me show you the horizon of the world in which we live, which is described in church growth circles today as, as a post-Christian world. The culture in which we live no longer reflects to any significant degree the Judeo-Christian values that America was founded on. Some even go a bit further and call it a pre-Christian world. Pre-Christian. Much more like the first century church was dealing with in Jesus' time. The pre-Christian world, the world in which we live today, is largely pagan and often associated with cultic behaviors and non-religious practices. Now, if you think that's hard to believe, just know that our young people are not surprised by that statement because they've been living in this world since birth. You may remember the name of Tony Blair. He was the former British prime minister. It was disclosed in December of 2007 that he had joined the Roman Catholic Church after being a lifelong member of the Church of England. Now, one commentator following the story stated that England, because uh, the prime minister had switched churches, was now a Catholic country. An interesting comment about a place where 70% or so of those uh, born are still baptized in the Church of England. One writer explained the ironic statement uh, with these numbers. He said, when you read more carefully, it turns out the picture is not quite so rosy even for Roman Catholics. It turns out that 861,000 people in Britain attend Mass every Sunday, while about 852,000 attend Anglican services. The population of Great Britain is over 60 million. So even the combined weekly attendance of the Roman Catholic Church and the Anglican Church, just to name those two, adds up to about 2.8% of the population. Now someone will say, we're a long way from that in America. Not so fast. The latest statistics tell us that just over 20% of Americans, on average, go to church on any kind of regular basis, and the numbers are declining rapidly. Does anyone here actually believe that it's higher than that? Do you believe that 40 or 50% of the city of Lansing or Detroit today are in church? Do you believe that 40 or 50% of students at Michigan State University or University of Michigan are in church today? Or that a majority of the people in the major corporations where you work attend church regularly? 
See, on Easter, in the most dedicated of Bible Belt communities in this country, a percentage of about 30 to 40% might be reached. So when I tell you that less than totally 7% of the British are in church anywhere in a given weekend, and the percentages less in other European countries, it ought to ring true because this is exactly where we are going in America. Not the way of Herod, but the way of the unchanged, uninterested, unmoved world. It's appropriate then to call the time in which we live a post-Christian era or a pre-Christian time. And we can't celebrate Christmas as Christ followers without asking the question, how do we live in this culture? Now I want you to look at a text from um, uh, that I want to use as the, make the point of this message. It's in John chapter 1, the first 18 verses, and I think some of the most important verses in all of Scripture. Because they certainly are important for this Sunday after Christmas, because they direct us to the what now. What now in a world that doesn't seem to care? Listen to John's words. In the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. The Word gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. God sent a man, John the Baptist, to tell about the light so that everyone might believe because of his testimony. John himself was not the light. He was simply a witness to tell about the light. The one who is the true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He came into the very world he created, but the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people, and even they rejected him. But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. So the word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. John testified about him when he shouted to the crowds, this is the one I was talking about when I said, someone is coming after me who is far greater than I am, for he existed long before me. From his abundance, we have all received one gracious blessing after another. From the law, uh, for the law was given through Moses, but God's unfailing love and faithfulness came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the unique one who is himself God is near to the Father's heart, and he has revealed God to us. He came into the very world he created, but the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people, and even they rejected him. Sound familiar? See, John knew that coming, the coming of Jesus into the world didn't impress anyone. In fact, the entire life and ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus wouldn't have been high on anyone's daily news summary for more than a few moments, even during the triumphal entry and the cleansing of the temple and some of the grander moments. John wrote about it uh, like it, uh, what it was like to believe something that many people didn't believe. They didn't even know it had happened. The whole world had changed in the birth of Jesus Christ. But most people's worlds didn't change at all. 
So John the Apostle points us to John the Baptist. John himself was not the light. He was simply uh, a witness to tell us about the light. Now, when we hear that word witness, sometimes we get off track because it's a word that Christians hear or can't hear really without thinking of all sorts of things they really don't like to do. So uh, I'm going to invite you to give it another chance. You see, John is not advocating putting up billboards and a verse and a slogan here and there. Rather, being a witness to the light is, of course, being a person whose world has been changed and rocked and altered by Jesus Christ. Luke says that the angels told the shepherds that there was a Savior, a Messiah, born in Bethlehem, not in Rome or Jerusalem, but in Bethlehem, and the shepherds' world was changed that night. They became witnesses. After seeing him, the shepherds told everyone what had happened and what the angel had said to them about the child. And the shepherds went back to their flocks, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen. And it was just as the angel had told them. To be a witness in a post-Christian world is to leave an unmistakable trail of evidence that our world, indeed our personal worlds, have been changed by the coming of Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean buttonholing people and giving them a sales pitch. It doesn't mean reducing Jesus to some kind of t-shirt or bumper sticker. It doesn't mean filling our world with a bunch of more Christian stuff. It means that the guy in the next cubicle or the teaching assistant or your unbelieving therapist or an uninterested neighbor won't be around you without seeing that your world is ruled by Jesus Christ. You and your life and your calling and all that you have become this witness to a world-changing Christ. See, John wasn't the light. That's important. That's fundamental. The message is never about us. It's not about our church. It's not about the wonderful children's and youth programs we have here. It's not about how great it is to be us or anything. It's not about anything that takes us out of the place of being a witness and makes us the point instead of the gospel. It's important to remember that what Christians are pointing to with our changed lives is Jesus. He's the one who changes the world. There are many ways to explain what a person, what changes a person's life, but the changes that Jesus makes represents a life that's been reoriented. And we're not caught claiming that we're wonderful because that's just not true. Jesus tells us in, or John tells us in in verse 14 that the most important thing that I can leave you with today are these words, so the word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness and we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. So in these post-Christian or pre-Christian times, you know, it's tempting to look the other way, to change the channel, to not put on the Christian station and just kind of keep a low profile. But instead today, I want to invite you to put flesh and hands and feet and gifts and creativity and your life at the service of the one who is the word. I want you to ask, uh, uh, I I want to ask you to put the world changing uh, Christ in your life in a way that the word of God's love and grace and message uh, takes on new life for the, for the world in which you live and the world around you. You might be surprised at what a difference you can make. 
The early Christians lived in their own version of this pre-Christian, post-Christian world, and it was definitely an unchristian time. The night Jesus was born, few knew and few even cared. And when you look at the story, and I hope that you will continue to take some time to do that, you will discover that what overtook this unchristian world in the first century with the good news of Jesus Christ were people who got out and served the hurting and invited the forgotten and risked and created and suffered and gave and, and went about building the kingdom. Putting flesh and hands and feet on the word is what we call incarnation. And it's not the short way, it's not the easy way, it's not the profitable way, at least as the world counts profitability and ease. And contrary to what you may hear from some Christians, it's not the, next, the way to the next level to success. But incarnation is a way that is plainly marked out for us by Jesus and by those who follow him. And in a world that may take the way of Herod sometimes, or, or even those who slept through Jesus' birth, we are invited to be people who live in that changed world as changed people. When you have found the treasure that we have found in Jesus Christ, everything in your life will change. So I'm asking today, what will change with you today? Let's pray. Eternal God, we admit that so often we have neglected the signs of your presence among us. We've organized life for our own self-interest, and so often we have failed to find you in the people and the events around us. So Father, even the wonder of the Christ child has left a lot of us totally unmoved. Break into our lives and in our routines and forgive us and change us and help us to be changed people so that we might change the world. In Jesus' name we pray.